Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Although most people support widespread immunization, opposition from a vocal anti-vaccination subculture has caused an alarming increase in the number of people not following the suggested vaccination schedule. There are many reasons that individuals choose not to be immunized. Some feel threatened by its perceived health risks. Lulled into a false sense of security, others ignore what they believe is a minimal threat to their families. Still others have well-intentioned but misguided moral concerns. Regardless of origin, these justifications fly in the face of the church's understanding of each person's duty to contribute to the common good. In this case, the protection of those persons who belong to at-risk populations, such as the elderly, underprivileged, and immunocompromised. To talk about the epidemiological and moral significance of vaccines, we are joined by Dr. Gwyneth Spader, a general pediatrician in Wake Forest, North Carolina, who received her medical degree in pediatric training from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Well, Dr. Spader, thank you for uh, being on the show. Uh, it is my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So just as uh, to give the audience a little bit of background, uh, it seems like in 2014, the outbreak of measles in Disneyland drew attention to the fact that vaccine rates have fallen in these recent years. What level are we at now and what level do public health officials say we need to be at? So on a national level, the childhood vaccination rates are hovering around the 90% mark, which is considered the critical number necessary to maintain herd immunity, which is the ability of the many to protect the few. However, minority populations and individuals living below the poverty line historically have lower levels of immunization than the general population. And in addition, widespread misinformation and unwarranted fear about the safety of vaccines has caused dramatic drops in vaccination routes throughout certain geographical locations, including parts of California, where in some cities, upwards of 75% of children remain unvaccinated. Unfortunately, with only 21 states in the country consistently maintaining vaccination rates above 90%, outbreaks of preventable diseases such as the measles will continue to occur. All right. You mentioned herd immunity. Could you explain that for our audience? Sure. So herd immunity is the idea that um, if the majority of the people uh, in the population are vaccinated or protected against a certain infection, that infection is unlikely to spread. Um, so if one person is exposed to a disease, but the next eight people they encounter are vaccinated against that disease, that disease cannot uh, propagate in the population and um, it will die out. But if one person is exposed to a disease and they encounter 10 people and only three of them are vaccinated against the vaccine, those other seven people are likely to catch the disease and 
then the people those people encounter are more at risk for catching the disease. So when we look at general population studies, it seems that for a disease to quickly spread throughout a population, it needs to have access to about 10% of people who are vulnerable to that, that, uh, that disease. And if there aren't that many vulnerable people, outbreaks do not occur. Now, besides the general population, uh, aren't there also individuals who cannot be vaccinated and the herd immunity also helps them, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So in any population, you are never going to be able to vaccinate 100% of the people. Um, So the immunocompromised uh, usually cannot receive most vaccines. Those can include people with inborn um, errors in their immune system, those undergoing cancer therapies, those um, who are undergoing treatment or are currently suffering from HIV. Um, And in addition, there are um, age ranges on when vaccines are safe and effective. So babies under the age of one cannot receive live vaccines. So any infant is potentially um, at risk of catching diseases such as measles or chickenpox um, because those vaccines are uh, given in live formulations and cannot be received till they're one year of age. So this herd immunity protects all of those components of the population. Um, and that's why it's so important that anyone who can safely receive a vaccine do so. So you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier some of the reasons why uh, some parents still distrust vaccines despite their proven health benefits. Um the benefits of following a standard immunization schedule. What are why why what are some of these reasons? So I think the explanation for the distrust of vaccines that has become so widespread in many areas of the country is twofold. First, there's a general mistrust about the safety of vaccinations that was instigated and propagated by faulty science that initially came out of England, claiming that the MMR or the measles mumps and rubella vaccine was linked to the rising rates of autism. And those claims have been repeatedly disproved, but they did cause great damage to the necessary trusting relationships that exist between public health officials and the general public. And the second component of the explanation for the falling vaccination rates is the overwhelming success of vaccination programs up until now. So today's parents, who are in general the ones making decisions about vaccinations for their children, these people have grown up in a society that has never witnessed the devastating effects of the diseases that these vaccines are designed to prevent. They have never seen a sibling live in an iron lung ravaged by polio. They have never buried an infant who died of pertussis or whooping cough. They have never known anyone who suffered from measles encephalitis or who has been rendered infertile by mumps or chitis. So because of the success of the childhood vaccination program in the second half of the last century, it's often difficult for today's parent to accept the mere possibility of any risk or discomfort to their child from a vaccine because they see no counter risk to the choice not to vaccinate. Are there specific geographic uh, and demographic areas where we see this widespread distrust? You mentioned the, of course, um, underprivileged communities that don't have access to it, but are there specific communities that uh, are more distrustful than others? Um, There are. I don't have any exact charts in front of me, but in general, Southern California, um, Oregon, 
those are two known hot spots of um, anti-vaccine sentiment. Um, you will find anywhere there's a high proportion of um, highly educated uh, parents. On, you would not necessarily expect that that would be the group that would be likely to choose against vaccination, but they do. They seem to um, uh, opt out more than average Americans. So a lot of the cities up and down the East Coast, there are pockets of, of this belief system. Um, those are the ones that come to mind off the top of my head. So in addition to this misinterpretation of evidence that you've been talking about, you also um, have said that there is a moral element that contributes to some people's hesitations about being vaccinated. Um, could you explain what this is? Sure, absolutely. So there are some who feel that the choice to vaccinate or not is purely an individual one, that it can be made by considering only the needs of their own family members. And I believe that this attitude ignores the responsibility that we all have to contribute to the common good of society. And there can be no doubt that a successful and widely implemented vaccine program is essential to a healthy society. And in addition, I find that the opinion of many individuals who refuse to vaccinate is the belief that, quote, I don't need vaccination because most other people get vaccinated and so I'll be protected by them. I run into this time and time and time again in my own office. But I feel that this attitude reveals a deep selfishness and a willingness to use others for one's own gain that cannot be consistent with any individual who is trying to live a moral life. You mentioned that you run into this into your, in your own practice. Um, what do you tell parents who don't want to get their children vaccinated? I think the conversation has to start with the question, why? You have to understand where that parent is coming from. Some are very, very well-intentioned parents who have kind of fallen victim to the endless misinformation that's available on the Internet. And they truly are worried that they are going to hurt their child by giving these vaccines. And that's a conversation that I'm very comfortable having. And we can go through step by step and say, OK, well, what have you heard? Why are you worried? Here's why I'm not worried. Here's why I believe this vaccine is safe. Here are the studies that prove it. Here's why I had no qualms about giving these vaccines to my own children. And those parents are usually very receptive to that kind of information. And there's another group of parents that fall more in the category of, I just don't want to do this because I don't feel threatened by these diseases at all. And that's a population that's a little more challenging to work with from my standpoint, because they one, have a false sense of security about whether or not these diseases are still real. And I do try and assure them they are still real. There are still children dying in this country of whooping cough. There have been multiple outbreaks of measles in this country. There are still outbreaks of polio throughout the world. And the world is a smaller and smaller place with the amount of travel we do. So I try and go over those fact-based issues with them. But then I also try and have a discussion with them about protecting others and our responsibility as members of society. Um, I'm not always as successful with that argument. How successful are you in general with um, convincing this group of parents? Um, I would say it depends on the length of time that that parent and I have had a relationship, I'm much more successful 
talking with families that know me or have known me for a while. And so we have that relationship of trust. Um, I also find I'm more successful with new parents. New parents are more likely to fall into the category of people who are concerned about vaccines just because they've heard stuff and they've Googled stuff. And we can usually overcome those fears pretty easily with fact-based science. Um, the group that I have the least amount of success with is um, is the group that ha has held these beliefs for years. Their social uh, parameters, their social peers hold these beliefs. Um, those are people that are pretty entrenched in these feelings, and, it, and it's hard to get them to change that. You uh, mentioned a little while ago about the common good. Catechism uh 1906 gives a pretty good definition of common good. And so this idea is entrenched very deeply within Catholic social teaching. And how does, Absolutely. you know, the Catholic interpretation and understanding of common good apply specifically to vaccination? Um, yes. So I, I truly believe that it does. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church um, defines the common good as quote, the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. And it goes on to say that the common good should make accessible to each what is needed to lead a truly human life, and they include a list of what, that, what a truly human life constitutes, food, clothing, health, work, education, culture, and so on. So the catechism specifically identifies health as a goal of any society that is ordered to uphold the common good. And so the relationship between the Catholic Church's understanding of the common good and the issue of vaccination centers around that, centers around, excuse me, centers around the idea that respecting our health, which is in fact part of respecting the life that God has given us, simultaneously demands that we honor the rights of others to protect and foster their own health. So there's a relationship that the church draws between the rights that we and others have and the duties that we and others have. And this was specifically spoken about by John the 23rd in his encyclical, Pachamanteris, and he wrote a, that the rights and duties of man flow together as a direct consequence from his nature. So this is how I break it down in my own head. Man has rights because he is created in the image of God, but he simultaneously has duties because his own personal flourishing only occurs when he aligns himself with his true nature, which is to be godlike in his choices. So just as God takes care of the weak and the vulnerable, so must we. And vaccination is just one of a myriad of very concrete examples of protecting the gift of life that God has given to each individual while simultaneously respecting and protecting the health of others. So vaccination protects us and it protects our fellow man. Now, it seems that a lot of these, uh, you know, reasons are somewhat passive um, in that, you know, you're uh, by doing this, you allow somebody to, um, pursue their own uh, flour flourishing. But at the same time, isn't there, and if you, if you aren't vaccinating, an active um, assault, an active exclusion of others from the common good? Would that be a fair characterization? Uh, you certainly are excluding, um, you are actively excluding certain um, 
parts of the population. You know, I'm a pediatrician, so I deal with children, and there are children who are undergoing therapies for cancer, and most of those therapies significantly significantly impair the, the body's ability to fight diseases. And there's usually a stage in a child's cancer treatment when they are still receiving medication regularly. We know their immune system is not functioning well, but they are well enough in general to go to school, to play with their friends. They don't have to be in the hospital for months on end. As a parent, I'm blessed at this moment to have healthy children, but I take care of parents who don't always have healthy children. And I watch their fear when they have to knowingly send their child to school, to a birthday party, to a park, and they don't know whether the children that their child is interacting with are vaccinated, and they don't know what they are exposing their immunocompromised child to. So in that way, that would be a very specific example of how when you choose not to vaccinate your own child, you put your child at risk, but you also exclude children whose parents may say, you know what, I cannot risk this. You cannot go to school. I'm going to have to keep you home. You cannot go to that birthday party. You cannot participate on that sports team because I can't risk you running into these other children who may be carrying these diseases. So in spite of the preponderance of evidence in favor of vaccination, there are still some parents who voice concern about using certain vaccines because of the way in which they were developed. Would you explain this? Sure. Many, uh, many well-intentioned Catholic parents have expressed concern about vaccinating their children with a few of the vaccines that are part of our standard vaccination schedule because of the way in which those vaccines were developed, specifically those vaccines that were developed using cell lines derived from aborted human fetuses. The vaccines most commonly cited with regards to this issue are the rubella vaccine, which is the only, which is the, excuse me, which is included in the only available MMR vaccine currently in use in the United States. And then you'll also hear this discussed in regards to the varicella or the chickenpox vaccine and hepatitis A. Excuse me. So these vaccines were developed from cell lines WI38 and MRC5, both of which did come from the tissue of aborted fetuses. And I find that there's a poignant irony in the fact that this issue has arisen around a vaccine, specifically the rubella vaccine, that was designed with the intention of preventing damage to unborn children in utero because the rubella virus is most dangerous to pregnant women and the children they are carrying. And that's why the rubella vaccine was developed. But the concern of parents who are worried about the use of these vaccines is certainly understandable. Anyone with a well-formed conscience should hesitate before the idea of potentially becoming complicit in the evil act of abortion. And I, I think we'll have a chance to talk in a minute about why I don't believe that receiving these vaccines is immoral. And that is a belief supported by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and the Pontifical Academy for Life. All right, well, let's move along right to that then. Why is it? Why aren't these vaccines immoral? So uh, I think that's a perfect, perfect follow-up question. So the, the development uh, of any given vaccine is, is quite a long and complicated process. 
And I'm just going to go into it for a minute because I think it will help us understand where the, um, the, moral, the questions of moral complicity lie. So in the initial stages of vaccine development, cell lines are often utilized to generate modified copies of the infectious agent in question, so in this case, rubella, so that these altered copies can be safely given to individuals to stimulate their own immune systems to produce antibodies that will intact the infection immediately if the individual is ever exposed to that infection in the future. So in the case of the rubella, varicella, and hepatitis A vaccines, the cell lines used were from tissue obtained through abortion. So there's no doubt that this is, these are unethically derived vaccines as their development was dependent on the evil act of abortion. And there are many, many other vaccines that we give routinely that have been derived from cell lines that come from other sources, such as the chicken egg for the influenza vaccine. And there's no ethical concern with those vaccines, just these, these three that we've spoken about specifically because of their original cell line usage. So to understand whether or not it's morally acceptable to use those vaccines, I think we have to look at the difference between um, formal and material cooperation. So formal cooperation is assisting in the performance of an immoral act while you intend the evil of the act itself. So the intention is key. And formal cooperation is an, in an evil act is never morally licit. But the decision by parents to vaccinate their children with vaccines that have unethical origins does not constitute this form of cooperation because the parent's intention is to protect their child against the dangers of infectious disease. And they in no way intend their use of the available vaccine to serve as an indicator that they wish further children to be aborted so that vaccines could be continued to be developed in this way. And I, I do wanna be very clear on this. When we say that these cell lines or that these vaccines are derived from cell lines from aborted tissue, this is not an ongoing process. This was the original development of the vaccine. There is that from abortions that occurred decades ago, which does not minimize the evil of that original act. But I don't want people walking around with the perception that children are continuing to be aborted so that we can have these cell lines. So that's formal cooperation. And I think it's pretty clear that use of these vaccines does not constitute formal cooperation. But it is important also to look at the question of material cooperation. And material cooperation is defined as providing assistance to the immoral act without intending the evil of the act. So you somehow participate in the act even though you don't want that act to occur. And that material cooperation can either be immediate or immediate. And immediate cooperation occurs when you don't share the intention of what's happening, but you participate in circumstances that are essential to the act, such that the act could not occur if you weren't there. Immediate cooperation is when you participate in circumstances that are not essential to the commission of the act. So one can easily see that the personal use of the MMR vaccine or varicella or hepatitis A does not constitute immediate material cooperation as the use of these vaccines occur far after the evil act itself and in no way allowed, it commission, allowed its commission. But many did remain concerned that the use of the MMR could be considered immediate material cooperation. And so these, this specific issue was addressed both by the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith and the Pontifical Academy for Life. And both very clearly concluded that these 
that it was moral for parents to continue to use those, these vaccines to protect their children against these diseases. So the CDF wrote that danger to the health of children could permit parents to use a vaccine which was developed using cell lines of illicit origin while keeping in mind that everyone has a duty to make their disagreement known and to ask that their healthcare system make other types of vaccines available. And the Pontifical Academy for Light said that vaccines with moral problems such as these may be used. The moral is that the duty is to avoid that the duty to avoid passive material cooperation is not obligatory if there is a grave inconvenience. And they find that in this case, there is a proportional reason to accept the use of these vaccines in the presence of the danger of favoring the spread of the disease due to the lack of vaccination of children. So that's a lot of talking to say that the Catholic Church recognizes that in our imperfect world, there has arisen a situation where it is necessary to simultaneously acknowledge appropriate sadness and concern over the origin of these vaccines, while not neglecting to respect our duty to care for our children and others by leaving them exposed to the ravages of diseases that are easily preventable through vaccination. There are ethically der derived MMR vaccines in Europe, correct? There are, yes. Do you think that they're ever going to make their way to the U.S.? Um, I, I think it is unlikely in today's current medical economic climate, and that's unfortunate, but it's just the reality of how drug development works in this day and age. So there would have to be enormous, enormous economic pressure to bring those vaccines to the United States. Um, they, the MMR currently in use in the United States enjoys, perhaps wrongly, widespread acceptance in the medical community. There's no incentive currently for drug companies to go through the regulatory approval processes to bring another version of that vaccine here. That is not to say that concerned Catholics should not continue to voice their concerns and express their desire to have an alternative available to them. Um, but I think it's going to take a shift in our overall culture's view of the sanctity of life before we see such a, such a specific change in drug availability. I would just like to encourage families who have these concerns to be open to discussing them with their pediatrician or their doctor and to be specific about what their concerns are. Um, it's difficult for pediatricians to know how to hold these discussions with families if we don't know what the stumbling blocks are towards vaccine acceptance. Um, and I would also caution families to be very wary of what they read on the internet. There's an enormous amount of misinformation out there. Um, so finding a pediatrician or physician that you trust um, so that you can rely on their education and their years of study to help guide you through what's, uh, you know, what information is available out there can be very, very helpful. Well, excellent. Thank you very much uh, for being on the show, Dr. Spader. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. For more information on the ethical use of vaccines or to find answers to other bioethical questions, visit our website, ncbcenter.org and subscribe to our publications Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. 
I'm your host, Phil Cerrone. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.